is the Wicked Problems Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ostrike. Today's interview is with Gabriel Mathy. Gabriel is an economist and economic historian at the American University in D.C. He is interested in the Great Depression and co-ops, and the latter topic is what he wrote about for WPC Book 2. There's a lot of interesting stuff throughout the interview, but I definitely ask you to pay it close attention. When he gets onto the possibility of bringing greater democracy through the economy with co-ops, I think it's a really interesting point he makes, so definitely check that out. With that, we'll get to the show. Welcome. I'm sitting down with Gabriel Mathy today. Gabriel, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Gabriel Mathy. I'm an assistant professor at American University in D.C. My main focus of research is the Great Depression, a macroeconomist and economic historian. But I'm working on tenure right now, and I'm looking forward to doing more research on cooperatives and worker-owned and managed firms in the future. Very cool stuff. And, and your chapter in the book was along those lines. Could you go ahead and share what that was about? Sure. Just thinking about cooperatives in this time, especially right at the beginning of the pandemic, when there was a big discussion about essential workers and what was the right level of work, who, which people should stay home, who should work, how long should they work, and so on. So I don't think that the current kind of capitalist structure that we have really got that right. I think that still having a market economy, but having workers manage the firm and control the firm would have been better to get that balance right. Because instead, we saw those reports that packers, the managers were taking bets on how many workers would get sick and how many would die and so on. Just really kind of cruel stuff. So instead, you really wanted to have workers running things so they can decide what's healthy, how many hours to work. There's going to be a balance between societal goals and how much workers are going to work, how much they want to earn money versus being home with their family, being able to take sick leave and so on. And so I really think that having an economy that was more based on worker control would have been an easy way to solve this. Workers have an intimate knowledge of how companies are run, what kind of conditions they're facing daily. If we have large corporations, they're mostly owned by absentee shareholders like myself who just own index funds, who have no idea how the business is run just want to increase profits. And so workers' interest and workers' safety is always going to be secondary to that. And so I think we really messed up in the pandemic response and too many workers were working in unsafe conditions for too long. I wrote about that a little bit in my last book, Pandemic Capitalism, where I, where I talked about the essential workers and the position that they were in where we had sent everyone else home. And there was a moment where I thought the realization was just about to happen where the bulk of humanity was going to go, well, wait a minute, what's really important and what do we reward? And I felt that that was the reason that the, the switch was flipped and everyone was told to go back to work. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think there was some realization, you know, not as much as I would have hoped, but I think you had similar things in historical crises too. After the Black Death, you saw a kind of wave of spending because people said, I might die tomorrow or the next year. Plague may come back. So people kind of reassessed their lives. And there was a lot of class conflict in the wake of that. Workers didn't want to go back to feudalism. Labor was scarce. Those conflicts, workers in Western Europe got the best of it and feudalism was on the way out. In Russia, things got worse. The Lord's 
were able to reimpose some pretty harsh feudalism or impose for the first time, I guess. Also in World War One, you had those kind of archaic empires that were undemocratic where, you know, a lot of most of the population didn't have the right to vote in places like the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and so on. And so in the wake of World War One, you had a reassessment where the populations were asked to sacrifice a lot. And so you had revolutions and upheaval and moved towards real democracy in, in a lot of countries. Ultimately, I don't think the changes will be as big. We are seeing more strikes than we did before and some more class conflict. I don't think, unfortunately, it would be enough to really change things to prepare us for the next pandemic or the next crisis. It's kind of been interesting. I've had some conversations with people who were a few years away from retiring. And in the circumstances, they just said, screw it and found a way to get by on less rather than force themselves back in into work. I've been kind of wondering, we, we've seen good job numbers, but the number of people who are discouraged workers or just completely dropped out of the picture from early retirements or whatever seems to still be a, a significant number. And I'm wondering, what is the long term effect of that? It seems like there's an awful lot of people that are not taking part in the um, whatever improvements there are right now. I'm not an expert on this, but from what I've read, in general, the pattern is that you have people that will retire and then a lot of them will come back into the labor force. Yeah. And so it seems that it's actually the, the kind of flows back that are disrupted. So people that are elderly don't want to be in unsafe conditions. Sure. You can imagine if you have a 65-year-old that's happy to get up early and be a bus driver. It's very different if you've got a bus full of kids of, of varying vaccination rates. I think that that's really shrunk the effective labor force. And also we've really heavily restricted immigration and the borders have effectively been shut for the last year and a half. And so, you know, we're really seeing the the lack of planning in terms of the demographic patterns and immigration patterns that we need a labor force to be able to produce things, to have an economy and the lack of production of, of safe environments for workers is harming us in, in that aspect too. Well, going back to your chapter, what would you like to see or what, what could people do to support those things and, and make them happen? To get more cooperatives. That's something that usually you start talking about cooperatives and people that are less familiar with it say, well, that doesn't require any kind of coercion or revolution. So, you know, why doesn't it just happen? Why don't workers just form cooperatives? And so from the research, it seems that mostly it's a problem with capital markets that the, the capitalists have easier access to bank financing. Sure. They have their own capital. They can issue shares. Whereas if you're a worker cooperative, they say, who are you? And the thing is, if the labor is what's valuable, then you can just default on the loan and reform the company with that core of workers mm -hmm. who can reform things. So it seems that it's, it's the capital markets, I think, that are really the issue. And also unfamiliarity. Bankers are not familiar with this type of production. So I think that one way would be to have more favorable tax treatment. Already, uh, you have corporate taxes where profits are taxed at a relatively high level. And so if you could have a more favorable tax treatment for worker cooperatives, that would be good. That would be one way to try to transition. In general, I think another option would be to have government give loans to worker cooperatives to try and ease these financial frictions. And then the workers would need to run the firm well, or else they're going to return to kind of subservient role in a capitalist structure to a firm rather than having control over their working environments. Another option would be to use an inheritance law. So reform the inheritance laws so that if you pass on your company to your heirs, to your children, say, and they continue to control the company, then you'd face a prohibitive tax rate, you know, say 90, 90 to 100%. 
Whereas you could pass on wealth, it doesn't have control rights at a lower rate. So just pass on real estate or bonds. So that way you can transition the economy to having these large companies, say Amazon, where you'd want to have it so that you don't just have the children of the original founders. There's no evidence that they're any better at running the business than the original founders are. It's not heritable. And so then you could make sure that the workers who really have intimate knowledge of running these companies are able to control things. If you think about the standard economics take it's that you accumulate wealth through savings. You see this even in, in Piketty and some left-leaning authors that his R versus G talks about the savings rate as a way to accumulate wealth. But most wealth is really coming from capital gains for a lot of the very wealthy. Bill Gates was not a particularly prodigious saver. Neither was Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. In fact, they probably have net dis-saving over their lifetime. It's their shares that gained in value, but they didn't do any savings. They just controlled companies that became very valuable because of capital gains. And in fact, they're dissaving because for tax reasons, it's much more attractive to borrow against their shares than the interest that they're paying has a more favorable tax treatment than selling shares. So we need to think about a different paradigm and the way that capital gains in corporations are really a major source of wealth for the very wealthy. And so transitioning the economy to a more cooperative firm where workers are going to benefit from that is an easy way to reduce inequality. So looking at other ways to reduce inequality, we could have wealth taxes. It doesn't seem that the political support is there really to, to pass that at the current time. Labor unions are another way, but again, the environment is still not that favorable. While the share of union membership is kind of stabilized, it's at a very low level in the private sector, it's something like six or 7%. So I think that this is one way to deal with this kind of big looming problem of inequality would be to ensure that workers are going to get these capital gains rather than the very wealthy. We've seen a lot of popular discontent with how much billionaires have made every second from the pandemic. And so if we're going to have a market economy, then ensuring that those gains accrue to workers is going to produce a much more equitable distribution of income. And it's something that we can do outside of the political system. Moving the economy to a cooperative footing doesn't require a large democratic majority that seem difficult to produce today. Do you see it as a, a threat to capital's returns then? Yes. So then essentially you're ensuring that those capital gains in companies are going to have a much broader base. So you, know, you have all the thousands of workers at Amazon would get all the capital gains from Amazon's value rather than the shareholders who are mostly part of the 1% and a very small share of the population. Completely on board. I'm just thinking about the uh, battle to come if, if the transition in that direction. One way would be also to have aggressive leverage buyouts like you had in the 80s with KKR. And you still have these with private equity. So essentially, you know, workers could borrow money and then take over companies. But there are ways to, to fight against that. You have poison pills and other ways companies can, can resist that. They already resist hostile takeovers from other corporations, from other capitalists. So it's likely that they would resist a takeover from workers or, or some representative of workers. But even if you lose some, having some examples so that people become more familiar with a cooperative structure. I think would, would be helpful. Also, you, you could have wealthy individuals that support democratic causes, like say George Soros, instead of donating to political campaigns where the money is gone afterwards and they, they have varying success rates, 
then they could simply lend money to some kind of leverage buyout process. They could set up some kind of organization that would engage in the leverage buyout. And then if it's unsuccessful, then the money's still there. If it's successful, then the worker-owned company could then pay back the the organization that did the leverage buyout at some favorable rates. So then, you know, instead of George Soros funding, say, the Clinton campaign, which was unsuccessful, unfortunately, right? Um, and that money's just gone, and then he could just lend money for this leverage buyout process. And then the, the workers that now control the company could just pay him back over time at some low interest rate, say at 0%. And then the money could be used again for another takeover. This would be one method if you have some kind of sympathetic philanthropist to kind of recycle the money. And then at the end, the workers would control the companies and they'd have the profits to pay off the existing investors who then would have their money back to engage in another takeover. So that would be another method to start this that wouldn't require political support. So it could be done today and there's relatively favorable tax treatment for debt. That's why these leverage buyouts happen. And also for worker-owned companies. So there's there's some companies like law firms that structure themselves this way because you get a more favorable tax treatment, though they're not really cooperatives because it's, <laughs> it's five or six lawyers. I mean, it, you know, it's better than just having one guy owning it, I guess, but it's not like if if Amazon was um, controlled by its workers, effectively. Is there potentially like a low profit problem? I guess if if they have a hard time getting funding, so that, that are they less competitive against an outside owned structure? I come from social enterprise angle. That's kind of what I work and teach in, and it can be really, well, it is really hard to find funding for a lot of stuff in in that area because you're typically either going for grants against people who are doing philanthropic work and that sort of stuff, or you're trying to get funding from lenders who are generally looking for, they, they may work in this sector, but they're still looking for high returns. So it can be really difficult to find your early stage funding in these types of things. And I'm wondering if it would be similar for co-ops. I think that's a big reason why you don't see as many. I mean, there's one view that a worker-owned firm would be inherently less productive that the workers are just going to loaf if they don't have the threat of the whip with a hierarchy. If they can name their own managers, then they're going to name bad managers who are not going to run the firm very efficiently. The existing workers are just going to loot the company, essentially, and then it's not going to be as profitable overall. And the evidence doesn't really support that. So there was some academic work by economists on cooperatives in lumber in the Pacific Northwest. And they found that they were just as productive, the worker-owned companies, but they had issues accessing capital. And so I think your point on social enterprises are going to face a similar issue. That's why I thought that having some kind of sympathetic philanthropist, rather than funding, say, the Democratic Party in the US, this would be another way to really effectively make a more just economy, rather than donating to political campaigns for Democrats, where you get a minus 100% return if they lose. So then they would accept a slightly lower return for a kind of riskier project or potentially a lower profit one, but one that achieves their political goals. So that's one way to square that circle, because I think the concerns you addressed are real. If you were going to pick one area to work on to try to make these more viable, would, would you try to work on policy, like lobbying, advocating? Would you try to find the, the funders? Would you try to build one of these on your own or support people that are trying to do it? Where, where do you think the opportunity is to help make this go? That's a great question. For me, I'm going to try to 
transition my research to focus more on cooperatives, try to make this case. I think that having a more favorable political environment would be good to change inheritance tax laws along the the lines I, I talked about or to have maybe some kind of loan program instead of just having favorable loans for small businesses to try to have favorable loans for cooperatives. I think that it's definitely an easier sell politically for the political right rather than having a kind of big government approach to make it easier for workers to control companies. It preserves a market economy and you can sell it as we have political democracy. You know, we can elect our representatives. And so this would be essentially economic democracy rather than having our political sphere that's democratic and then having a very undemocratic economic sphere where you have rigid hierarchies and workers with very little control to extend democracy to the economic sphere as well. I think politically the right also might see that there's a potential here to have something like George Bush's ownership society Mm -hmm. that a cooperative would very successful workers that have a real stake in the system. And so might be in the long term beneficial to their political goals. I'm not super excited about that, though. Uh, <laughs> I would be I would be happy if we could have a real just economy. I would be happy to have a more right leaning electorate. But hopefully that's a way to build a political coalition for this. I mean, in, in England, you do see that even the Tories support favorable legislation to having more worker ownership and control. So it hasn't been as much of an issue here, though. You did have some movement towards uh, employee stock ownership program and things like this that had um, conservative support in the U.S. too. Do you think it could be something that could be done maybe at like a state level and and kind of as a proof of concept to to show the benefits? Yeah, maybe we could have Delaware for the capitalist firms. Then we just have a state that, say Vermont, that has very favorable incorporation for worker-owned companies. So that's a good idea. I'd never thought about that, but that might be a good test case. All right, Gabriel, let's move on and discuss something that's maybe a little fun. You, you brought something up with me recently about time zones. Why don't you share what your thoughts are there? Sure. So I grew up in Illinois, so I was in the central time zone, um, but very close to the eastern time zone. Uh, we had very early sunsets in the winter, um, sometimes as early as 4 or 4.30. It was pitch black coming out of, out of high school. So I had some interest in time zones. So I think it would be better to move to a system where we have fewer time zones. You know, Once I flew from central to mountain to Pacific, and it's a real pain to always be changing your watch. And so I think that we have basically two kind of major time zone areas. If you look at, say, HBO, they have basically two feeds. They've got Pacific and Eastern. And they're going to put Central with Eastern. Then Mountain usually goes with Pacific. And so I think that it would be better to move Central time to just be on Eastern time and to move Mountain time to be on Pacific time. And then essentially you'd only have one time change, but it'd be along a very low population area. So, you know, Western Nebraska, Western Kansas, these are um, very low population areas. You have an interesting feature actually in the US that you have this 98th or 100th meridian where basically west of this line, you get much drier climate. So east of this line, it it goes through Texas, and it's a little bit east of that time zone line, so a little bit west of Omaha, Nebraska. East of that, you see it on population maps because you've got a lot denser population where you have rain-fed agriculture. Anywhere west of that line, for some reason, it's kind of like a brick wall you hit. You need irrigation because it's too dry, so you get much lower population densities. And so it happens that mountain to central line is a little bit west of this. And so you have really small populations around there. The largest city near there is El Paso, 
and even so, it's not all that close to the line because it's a little bit farther east in Texas. So this would mean that you'd have this really large three-hour time difference, but it would be along an area that's pretty low population. And then, you know, how would you deal with that given then you'd have this huge eastern time zone, which would be more than half of the U.S. population, right? Something like two-thirds is in central and eastern time. Then I would have each county that would just adjust time internally. So rather than having things like daylight savings, you know, if you want to have daylight savings in your county, then instead of changing all the clocks, you could just change the schedule. So if you have things like schools post offices and so on, then there'd be a kind of suggested schedule at the county level. And then individual organizations could just adjust their schedules internally. So already you have things like in Maine, you know, it's almost would fit better in Atlantic time, but the US only has Eastern in the continental US. Internally, people kind of leave work around 4 p.m. instead of 5 p.m. You could just do that everywhere and just adjust the schedule internally. And so then you'd have a nominal three-hour time change between Pacific, which would now include Mountain, and Eastern, which would now include Central. But those counties, in terms of you know where the sun is in the sky, it would probably be pretty similar because then they could just adjust their schedules internally. And so if you're having a phone call in Eastern or Central time today, it would all be an Eastern and you wouldn't need to worry about getting the clock wrong, but people would have lunch at a different time in East Texas than they would in Maine. But that that probably fits better. In the current system, people kind of do a nine to five. And so you just get adjustments. You just get maladjustments where some areas are off and it, it'd probably be better, especially in northern areas where you tend to get pretty short daylight in the winter to just have them adjust internally and just have, you know, schools can start 15 minutes later or early or something like that, rather than this really disruptive time change, which, you know, I have three kids. So every time it happens, they get terrible night's sleep and they're up crying and things like that. So I really dislike daylight savings. I guess you agree with me too. Yeah, completely agreed. Having lived in Thailand the last six years without daylight savings, I am, I am a complete convert. I, I never liked it to begin with, and I'm certain now that I completely hate it. If we can get it to die in a fire, I'm completely on board. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, uh, we'd sometimes take flights out of Indiana. And so Indiana at the time would let each county decide if they were on Eastern or Central. So you'd always worry about missing your flight. And also they would switch because they also allowed not doing daylight savings, I believe. I mean, already with Arizona, they switch between Mountain and Pacific. So all that missing flights, the, the Google calendar is always off. So you know, hopefully that would end that system. And that should simplify things. I know we, we took a, we were back in the US this summer and took a trip out west through a bunch of the national parks. And I remember driving around in Arizona and especially around the Four Corners where they weren't on daylight savings. Navajo lands are on daylight savings and we were crossing back and forth between state lines and I never knew what time it was. Yeah, because the, 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 the Navajo reservation also is a little corner that's back in regular Arizona. So yeah, it's, it's pretty complicated. Gabriel, well, thank you very much for, for sitting down with me and anything else you'd like to share before we, before we cut it off? Nope, I think that's it. Um, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I think thank you for taking part today and, and for contributing to the book. Greatly appreciated and uh, would love to have you back in sometime. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was interesting and that it helped you see something anew. As an independent press, we can use all the help we can get reaching new readers and listeners, so please do share this for us. What Do We Do After the Pandemic is available now, but if you're interested in giving us a brief, honest review, you can pick up a copy on BookSirens.com. 